Here are a few wordplay, well, silly kind of wordplay questions that I saw recently. Is there another word for synonym? Would a fly without wings be called a walk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is it true that cannibals don't eat clowns because they taste funny? What was the best thing before sliced bread? If you try to fail but succeed, which have you done? <laughs> Think about those questions, but not too long. <laughs> Solomon had lots of questions. In fact, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is his exploration of his questions about life. It is really his autobiography, if you will, that explores his quest in life. Only his questions were the real ones, the serious ones, the big ones that really matter for every one of us. He set out to find answers to his questions. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 23, we are reminded about that quest. We want answers to our questions. Look at chapter 7, verse 23 this morning. Solomon says, I tested all of this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious, who can discover it? Solomon set out on a search. He wanted to be wise. He was searching for all the answers that man could find. But remember that he was searching for those answers apart from God as he laid out his search in this book. He wanted answers to his questions, but he wanted to discover those answers for himself in himself, in this life, on this earth. Many today want answers too. Lots of questions. Mark sang about it this morning. Many have questions about life and seek to find the answers to those life questions, but all too often without consulting God. Everybody wants answers, but they want to find them in themselves. Look inside yourself, we're told, to find those answers. Look at life and experience and find those answers. Maybe you are one of those people here this morning. You have lots of questions, and you want answers, but you don't want to go to God for those answers. You want to find them yourself. And Solomon has some news for you. You will never find those answers to the big questions in life, apart from God. In verse 24, he tells us that what has been is way beyond our discovery. He searched and he searched and searched for answers. It's way beyond our ability to discover, he said. It is a mystery. The Hebrew text literally says that it is deep, very deep. And who can find it out? The Hebrew expression is a metaphor, if you will, for that which is mysterious or profound or beyond human explanation. The answers to life's biggest questions cannot be discovered in human history or human experience apart from God and his revelation. Now, 
The New Testament commentary on this quest for meaning apart from God is found in Romans chapter 1. And Paul writes in Romans 1 that God had revealed himself in the creation and that his power and his nature have been understood through all that God has made, but humans denied all that God had revealed and sought answers apart from God's revelation. And Paul writes, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. That's Ecclesiastes right there. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Paul is telling us that seeking answers to life's questions, apart from God's revelation, makes us fools. We can profess to be wise. We can have all the degrees in the world. And we're fools. We exchange God's glory for earthly idolatry. And there are all, all kinds of idolatries today, even in our modern world. Whenever we seek answers outside of God's revelation of himself, we will never be satisfied with the answers we find. Because God is the creator, God is the designer, he has the answers. The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. And Solomon certainly knew and read this book. Job came to the very same conclusion that Paul did and that Solomon, of course, ultimately will come to at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes when he says these very same words, really. Job wrote, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. God understands its way, and he knows its place. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding." God's will is found in God's word, in his revelation. And it's like a highway leading us through life. I think of it as like a four-lane highway. And God's word is like the signs on that highway pointing us in the direction we need to go. It is like the guardrails on the sides of that highway God's law, God's word is keeping us from violate, dropping off the sides, going the wrong way in life. But on that four-lane highway, there is certainly a great deal of flexibility within the guardrails as we follow God's word. And that is wisdom, to walk or to drive that highway. You've got to stay, though, inside the guardrails, and you've got to follow the signs where God is leading us. And that's God's word. Living in God's will means obeying God's word. And Solomon realizes that the answers to his questions are, are found in obeying God's absolutes, his truth. And that's, he will arrive at that conclusion, of course, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Meanwhile, we have to understand Ecclesiastes is a book exploring all of his tests. 
All of the things he tested out in life, seeking to find satisfaction and fulfillment. We have seen him already in this book test out money, careers, jobs, relationships, materialism, work, all of these things he was testing out, asking questions, seeking if he could find answers apart from God. Now Solomon raises another test question for God, not for God, for himself, as he seeks to try and answer that question in life. And it is a very relevant question to our world today, exceedingly relevant to 21st century America. It is the test of sex. Now, Solomon knew exactly what God had said about sexual relationships in the law. But he deliberately set out to explore sexual relationships outside of God's moral boundaries, outside of those guardrails. Just as many people do today. Is that not our world? He sought to find answers to his quest for fulfillment in sexual relationships outside of God's guardrails, but he found that in the end, immorality is a form of insanity. It does not satisfy. Verse 25, I directed my mind to know to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered, what did I discover? I discovered more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Now, This is one of those passages that if I didn't believe in expository preaching, I'd probably pass over. (laughs) It's one of those awkward, uncomfortable passages. But I do believe in expository preaching, so I can't pass it over. We've got to deal with what he is talking about here, even if it is awkward and uncomfortable and somewhat difficult. Essentially, what Solomon says here is he set out to investigate what he calls the the foolishness of madness. Now, the Hebrew word for madness means a delusion. And the word stressed the irrational aspects of insanity. So Solomon set out with all that he could muster mentally, with his brilliant mind, he set out to investigate insanity, and his test case was women. (laughs) Essentially, what Solomon says here, and finishes down in verse 28, is that he searched for love with women, lots and lots of women, by the way, and he found that women were snares and nets, and their hands were chains. He discovered that sexual relationships with many women did not lead to love at all, but was a form of insanity. That's what he set out to discover. Insanity. The man who pleases God 
escapes the clutches of a woman like this, but the sinner becomes trapped in this insanity. He cannot think straight because of the power this woman holds over him and his sexual relationship becomes a delusion of love that is ultimately totally unsatisfying. Now, on the basis of this, on the basis of this passage, many write, and, and we have to deal with this one, because many people write that Solomon was a misogynist on the basis of this passage, that he was a woman hater, that he was putting down women in this passage because of what he says here. And what he says in verse 28, which we'll get to in a minute, where he says he did not find one good woman among a thousand of them. (laughs) So he's a woman hater, people say. Feminists argue that this is an example of how the Bible puts down women. But I want to say this very clearly. This is not God's view of women. This is Solomon's view of women and particularly the women that he was searching for love with. The book of Ecclesiastes is really an autobiography. It is the story of Solomon's search for meaning in life. Now Solomon was not a woman hater, he was a womanizer. Now, it is true that womanizing is a form of hating women because it treats women as objects to be used for one's gratification. And Solomon did that. He sought love with many women and that is a total, absolute violation of everything God had told him in his word. Everything that God had taught in the Bible God values women, and God elevates women to a high place in life. And marriage is designed by God to be the place where people, two people, can have that ultimate fulfillment, and where a woman should feel valued as God values a woman. So, marriage is one man and one woman committing themselves to life, to each other, committing themselves to each other for life as partners made in the image of God. And Solomon violated all of this biblical teaching and pursued women as objects of gratification, so it's no wonder that he found them to be traps who led him away from God. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, and it goes on with a lengthy list, by the way. Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. The kinds of women that Solomon loved were indeed snares and chains. That does not mean that all women are snares and chains. 
After all, Solomon also wrote Proverbs chapter 31, extolling the value of the virtuous woman, did he not? And he wrote Song of Solomon, which celebrated the beautiful union of love between a man and a woman. But what Solomon is saying here is that he set out to explore the insanity of these relationships. And he found that these sexual relationships outside of God's boundaries for marriage was indeed a form of insanity and led nowhere. Men, and we could say by extension women too, will throw away all that is good to follow the lust that comes to control their hearts. Is that not a form of insanity? It's insane to do that. All common sense goes out the window. You can see it in the headlines of newspaper articles and politicians and others who get caught in all of these things. Paul wrote again in Romans chapter 1, Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God gave them over to the lusts. And it extends all the way to homosexuality. And that too, being a violation of God's boundaries on the highway of life. The Bible teaches us that our bodies are holy and that we should use them to glorify God. God created sex, but it is sex within marriage that honors God with our bodies. Men and women will find God's way to be the best, to be the most fulfilling way to find meaning in life. Sex within marriage is wonderful, but sex outside of marriage is a perversion of God's design. and leads to the bondage of moral insanity. Yet, people are always trying to find love outside of God's design in marriage. Sunday mornings, I usually try to get the paper and at least look at the headlines because I want to know what's going on in our world before I arrive here in case there's something that, you know, I ought to know about before church starts. So I looked at the front page of Portland Press Herald this morning, and one of the headlines on the front page of the paper, not Libya, in fact, Libya wasn't even on the front page of the paper, not any of these major issues going on, the front page of the paper has has Bachelor Beat, Was It Love, Ashley Ready to Kiss, Tell. And the story is, of course, about Ashley Hebert, 
from Madawaska here, who was on the program called The Bachelor and lost out to two other women. Brad Womack was The Bachelor and this, this whole story about finding love. That's not love at all. She's talking about how she had this love bond with Brad. That's not love at all. It's lust, maybe, but it's not love. And it's not the way to find love. And yet people are searching for love in all sorts of ways outside of God's boundaries. And you won't find it because God designed us. And he knows where we will find our satisfaction. Have you heard about the personals website designed to facilitate extramarital affairs, for example? Log on and you have immediate access to thousands of men and women willing to throw their vows away. So far, the site has been a through-the-roof success. In one month, almost a million men and women use the site to have an affair. And since 2008, when this site was started, site membership has doubled to 4 million people on the site. It sees its largest traffic just after Father's Day, when men feel the most unappreciated, and just after Valentine's Day, when women feel the least appreciated. That's when it spikes. According to the personal profiles of those who use the site, 90% of the males, 60% of the females are in fact married. The CEO of the site, Noel Biderman, shrugs off any criticism saying, we're just a platform, no website or 30-second ad is going to convince anyone to cheat. People cheat because their lives aren't working for them. And he went on to say, humans are not meant to be monogamous. I'm providing a service, is his argument. But when asked how he would respond if his own wife were to use the site, he said, I would be devastated. The inconsistencies of seeking love outside of God's boundaries. It doesn't make... That is insane! (laughs) It's insane! It's not even logical, rational. These are the lies of lust that our culture emphasizes. It's all around us. We were designed by God to find fulfillment in a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship. And anything out of, outside of that is the foolishness of moral insanity. That's the truth. And Solomon comes to that conclusion here and realizes why we do all of this, because our schemes obscure God's design. Verse 27. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So Solomon searched all of life, 
adding one piece of evidence to another in his quest to find the scheme of things. The Hebrew word translated scheme means an accounting or a reckoning. Solomon was looking for the grand scheme of life, an accounting of life that showed a plan that was understandable, a design to what we're doing here on this earth. And he never found that grand plan as long as he was searching for answers without God because God's plan is the grand plan. It's the design for life on earth. Solomon couldn't find it apart from God. What he did find was one man among a thousand and no women among a thousand who were upright. Now, once again, the feminist writers use this passage as an example of the Bible's negative view of women. But this is not God's view of women. This is whose view? Solomon's view. We have to remember this is an autobiography of Solomon's personal search. I don't think it is a coincidence that Solomon used the round number of a thousand here. For he had how many wives? A thousand wives. Well, 700 wives and 300 concubines, but a thousand wives, essentially. He is saying, this has come written at the end of his life as he looks back over everything, and he is saying that he found one man in a thousand who was upright. (laughs) So that's pretty rare to begin with. But he he, he found not a single woman in his harem who was upright. Now, that's not an indictment of women in general. That was a statement of the women in his harem. I like the way Matthew Henry in his commentary spoke of this conclusion by Solomon. Matthew Henry wrote, He, Solomon, took many women, so many that at last they amounted to 700 wives, 300 concubines, a thousand in all, and not one good one among them as he himself owns in his penitential sermon, for no woman of established virtue would be one of such a set. No smart woman would do it. The smart ones aren't going to do that, Solomon. The wise ones, the godly ones. So why should it surprise you that you didn't find any godly ones among them? God never designed a harem for men. That's not his design. God never designed a plan that would make women into objects of gratification for men. That's not God's design. God designed marriage for one man and one one woman to be life partners, to walk through life together. And Solomon paid a huge price for violating that design of God. Ultimately, they turned his heart away from the Lord, which shouldn't be a surprise, because when you're involved with people who do not follow the Lord, they will turn your heart away from the Lord. And he found nothing in the end but bitterness in his search for love. That's the message. We will find nothing but bitterness in our search for love, too if we don't follow God's design. And he concludes with the truth in this whole matter in verse 29. The truth is 
that God made humanity upright. The Hebrew word means a person who conforms to a standard, God's standard. God made men and women in his image. He made them upright. God didn't make a mistake when he created humanity, right? Genesis 1.27, and God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. The standard was God's image and God's values. Humans were made to conform to that standard originally. Furthermore, women are not inferior to men. Applause, please. Right? Women are not inferior to men in God's design. We are each both made in God's image. Women and men are both equal carriers of the image of God and are valued for that image. All humans are made in the image of God. This is foundational stuff for life. And as believers, we start from that starting point in our relationships. What is the problem then? What does he say the problem is? It's not God. It's not God's design. Why do we have these perversions like Solomon practiced himself and found to be totally unsatisfying? So he's testifying this doesn't work. Well, he tells us in verse 29, it is humans who mess things up. God made us upright. We seek out and pursue schemes, devices. Now, it's a play on words with the search for God's scheme, God's grand scheme in the previous verse. Another form of that same Hebrew word is used here. The Hebrew word that is used here was a a word that referred to siege machines in war. You know those big machines that throw stones and other kinds of siege machinery? This was war machinery. Or it could mean plots or evil plans. So it is humans who turned God's grand design, his big plan, into a plot, into a war machine to conquer other people with our power and the power struggles of relationships. That's not God's design at all. The ways we seek sexual fulfillment outside of marriage violate God's design for marriage and make it hard to see the plan that God has for men and women. Our schemes obscure God's design for marriage, and so hence today our culture does not even grasp the design of God for marriage and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that come from following God's way in life. Now, a classic example of this scheming, if you will, of humanity, and there are lots of ways we could talk about how humans scheme to find other ways seeking love. But a classic example of this scheming of humanity is the notion that is prevalent today that living together before marriage will help you have a better marriage. That is so common today that it's almost a rarity for me Well, it's not really quite that bad, but it's so common for me to deal with couples who think that living together before marriage is a good thing. It will help us do better in marriage. 
And I see this logic, really this illogic, all the time. And I'm here to tell you, young people, it is a lie. Living together does just the opposite because it is a scheme that goes against God's design. It makes it harder, not easier. God's design for marriage is far better than man's schemes. It doesn't mean that everyone who fails in this way is doomed, for God is a God of grace too. But it does mean that it is not the best way to go. It is not God's design. It doesn't work. In a 2007 edition of the New Oxford Review, Dr. A. Patrick Schneider II did a statistical analysis of cohabitation in America, of living together, based on the findings of all kinds of academic resources. Here are five conclusions that Schneider draws from his studies. Relationships are unstable in cohabitation. One-sixth of couples that live together stay together for only three years. One in ten makes it five. Secondly, cohabiting women often end up with the responsibilities of marriage, particularly when it comes to caring for children without the legal protection. Research has also found that cohabiting women contribute more than 70% of the relationship's income. In other words, guys are mooching off girls is what it boils down to. Number three, Cohabitation brings a greater risk of sexually transmitted diseases because cohabiting men are four times more likely to be unfaithful than husbands. Four times more likely. Poverty rates are higher among cohabitors. Those who share a home but never marry have 78% less wealth than the continuously married. Five, those who suffer most from cohabitation are the children. The poverty rate among children of cohabiting couples is five times greater than the rate among children in married couple households. Children ages 12 to 17 with parents who live together are six times more likely to exhibit emotional and behavioral problems, six times more likely, and 122% more likely to be expelled from school. This is just secular science research. In study after study after study by secular psychologists, the findings are the same. Living together before marriage makes it much more likely the marriage will fail and that bitter consequences will result, especially for women and children. It makes no sense for women to do this even from the rational 21st century world. Young people, don't buy that lie. Please, don't buy that lie. Living together is no way to make your marriage effective or better. It won't. God's design for marriage is far, far better. So wait for marriage to enjoy sex. God's way is better than man's schemes all the time. The way of wisdom is to obey the will of God. God made marriage so that 
one man and one woman could walk together for life in partnership, in union, in intimacy. And the way of wisdom is to obey the will of God. That is far better than the alternative. Shauna Pallad had had enough. It was Sunday morning, January of 2000. Her husband, Rick, still wasn't home from his Saturday night partying. I was at home with my son, Drake, who was three at the time, she remembers. It was very common for Rick to be out all night. I always knew there was unfaithfulness. That bothered me, naturally. But I was worried about Rick's safety, that he was going to turn up someplace dead. And that morning, I was at the end of my rope. As she explained in a story recounted in Decision Magazine, she was angrily washing dishes in the kitchen. And on the television, a man was talking, and she was drawn to what he was saying. He was a preacher in a church there, and he was talking to her at her level. It made sense. I felt something come over me that I can't explain, she remembers. I couldn't quit crying. At the end of the program, it said, join us at church, and it gave the name of a church in Winnipeg. I couldn't get my son dressed fast enough. On the way to church, she had one purpose in mind, getting emotionally strong enough to kick Rick out. She had herself tried using marijuana, immersed herself in alcohol, various relationships, trying to put put Rick out of her heart. Now, She thought she'd found the answer. But God had a surprise for her. At the end of the message, the pastor invited people to give their lives to Christ. And she raised her hand. I never looked back, Shauna said. Three weeks later, Rick asked if he could join her at church. He knew that his behavior was hurting his family. He was held captive to drugs, sexual addictions. After four or five weeks of attending church with his wife, Rick recognized his need for Christ. Still the struggle continued. You know, the patterns that get set don't easily fall away, do they? The struggle continued. I was going to church and wanting to do right, Rick says, but I kept doing wrong. It wasn't until a promise keeper's seminar that he finally came to understand the importance of repentance and accepting the forgiveness God offers through Jesus Christ. And that day after the conference, he went home and he told his wife, Shauna, I can be the husband you need me to be now. And they committed their marriage to Jesus Christ. Rick and Shauna's lives took a 180 degree turn that day. They became active in their church. They serve as promise keeper volunteers and they share the hope of God's restoration and forgiveness with other struggling couples. When I think how Jesus can change people no matter how deep in sin they are, that overwhelms me, Rick says. If he did it for us, he can do it for anybody. If he did it for us, he can do it for anybody. Listen, please. If you are here this morning and you say, Dave, I've messed up. I've failed sexually in one way or another. Our marriage is a real mess right now because of my sin. 
What am I supposed to do? Well, remember this. Remember the principles of repentance and grace. Repent. Turn away from the sin. Recognize that it is wrong. But also understand the beauty of God's grace. Because God is the master at transforming lives that have been broken by sin. God is a master at transforming marriages that have been broken by sin. God is a master at taking lives that have failed, living together, but now want to follow the Lord and honor Him and put Christ first. You come to the foot of the cross and what do you do? You say, here's my mess, God. Here's my mess. Please forgive me. and Help us to start fresh, following your way, within your boundaries. And God will change you. He will change you by his grace. Isn't that wonderful? There are people in this room who have seen that kind of change in their lives and in their marriages. God is a God of grace. And we come this morning to our communion service where we celebrate what Christ did for us on the cross. We are all flawed people. And we all come to the foot of the cross all solely by his grace. And we let go of our load and we ask God to change us now. And in the days ahead, help us to follow his word on that highway that he is guiding us through life. Father, teach us, change us, mold us, remake us, draw us to repentance where we fail, where we sin, and help us to realize the wonder of your grace and love that can change broken lives and broken marriages and remake them into marriages and lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.